You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Rodney, Mark, Towner, Caitlin, good morning. Very exciting day here on the Beltway Briefing. And Mark, as you said in our run-up to the recording, it's tournament time. Towner, all eyes are pointing at you because my team lost yesterday. Yeah, you know. You have Miami. You have the U. Michigan not making it into the tournament, maybe? Last four out right now, I believe. Absolutely not making the big dance. UNC's on the next four out, which is my favorite thing in the world right uh this goes out, out to you Jim out. Davis. yeah you get you get no credit for being <laughs> the next four out yeah Tyler, I mean, you're gonna get obliterated tonight by the hurricanes you think yeah you and i watched that game earlier this year they were horrible they didn't play they didn't show up at all they just they just let them run wild on them. they actually beat them in cameron and they're much better team right now. They are peaking at the right time as Duke two teams usually do. So, uh, okay. Well, you give Stuart Shorenstein a call and and simulcast that with with Stuart and have a good old time. Well, that would be fun. If Stuart and I did a live feed of the of the game for everybody. There you go. Like, yeah, yeah. All right. Like Peyton and Eli. Right? <laughs> yeah. it's, except for we talk about you know lobbying. <laughs> so. <laughs> so here's where where I thought we'd start today, guys. It's uh, Larry Hogan, my former governor, Republican governor in a very blue state, had an op-ed five days ago or a guest essay in the New York Times declaring that he won't seek the Republican nomination for president, which in and of itself is not much of a revelation because he wasn't going to win the Republican nomination for president. Although Rodney, I'd argue if the Republicans had any sense, he's exactly the kind of candidate you'd pick to represent the party because he's electable. He's a red governor in a blue state and no traction, no traction nationally with the Republican party, but he could, he could win. I'll, I'll let you comment on that in a second, but essentially his guest essay was a broadside against Trump's stranglehold on the Republican Party. So, Rodney, does Donald Trump still have a stranglehold on the Republican Party? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say it's Donald Trump's stranglehold. It's it's the type of politics that led to the victory of Donald Trump. I mean, I think any discussion about electability has to change from what all of us uh, had thought electability was in a Republican primary prior to 2016. Uh, Remember, Mitt Romney was the most electable candidate in 2012 and then got eviscerated by Barack Obama. Donald Trump was unelectable. I mean, I'm guilty. I said he'd never win a primary. But then when it got down to, you know, John Kasich, who didn't have a chance to win that primary, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, a lot of us were like, well, we know Cruz and we don't want him. So let's ride the tiger with Trump. Well, now here we are. Larry Hogan, great man, great governor, would, been a, would be a great president. But 
him firing off an op-ed criticizing Trump is just a kind of a, a last dig at him while he realized that he had no path to a Republican nomination. And frankly, his best shot is to be the no labels consensus candidate that I think could help Republicans. How does that help Republicans? I don't, doesn't that peel votes away from Republicans in a general? Well, Trump's the front runner right now. And most Republicans don't want him to win. Ron DeSantis is probably, in my opinion, at this point, the only Republican that can build a coalition with those frustrated Trump voters if he doesn't win and uh, normal, or I wouldn't say normal, what you would have called establishment Republicans in the past. And if that's the case, I think Ron is able to get the turnout necessary from the low propensity Trump voters. When you look at where Joe Biden was able to win in certain states that were very close, Georgia, Arizona, those were disaffected Republicans. So if they're going to vote for a Larry, the votes for a Larry Hogan are going to come from those same anti-Trumpers, the disaffected Republicans in the suburban parts of our, our states that are crucial to the Electoral College. And those suburbanites want to go vote for a Republican again. We just haven't given them the candidates to do so. Here's what I can't make sense of, though. And you said it, so I'm going to quote it back to you. Donald Trump is the front runner, but most Republicans don't want him to win. Like, yeah, I, but it's it's may it's, I jump in from the the other side on a, a procedural point? The reason that Trump is the front runner, it seems to me, is the winner take all primary system. Somebody is going to win the Republican nomination with a minority of the party. And Trump has that base that if it were proportionate assignment of delegates, this could look very different. But should we go take talk Trump to President out, Biden about that? Pardon? Should we go talk to President Biden about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Starting with well, South Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> but start there. <laughs> yeah. No, hey, Howard, I, can I that make... was intended, believe it or not, to be a neutral <laughs> observation of process. But well, it's so it... Trump, Trump is gonna write Rodney, Caitlin, Towner, tell me. Trump is good for 30-something percent primary after primary after primary. And if someone else can't consolidate the rest of the vote, if it gets divided, he's a minority nominee. He's our Bernie Sanders. Four years ago, Bernie Sanders was in the exact same position as Donald Trump. Yep. He had that base of support. And what you saw were Democrats coalescing around a candidate and doing what they should do coming up with a compromise, and, and they got Joe Biden the nomination. That could happen with Republicans. We shall see. But Republicans are clearly more independent thinkers than Democrats, Mark. Yep. Yeah, Ronnie, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, think about we're not the Republican Party and a lot of the outside groups are not going to sit back and make the same mistake they made in 2016. We are already seeing one of the biggest spending groups, Americans for Prosperity and the, the Koch Network in general came out and said, we're not, they've been criticized for kind of sitting out some of the primaries. 
the past couple of cycles. They didn't really weigh in in 16. They've come out big and said, we are going to spend and spend and spend to ensure that Donald Trump is not the Republican nominee. And to your point, great op-ed by Larry Hogan. But we're seeing smart, great governors step back and say, you know what? I'm not going to run because we can't have 16 candidates running in the Republican primary and think we're going to consolidate behind someone that's not Donald Trump. So I see the party learning a lot of lessons that they maybe didn't necessarily learn in 16 because a lot of folks didn't think that Trump was going to be the nominee. You know, I think there's a little bit of self-serving to it as well. There's certainly a number of moderates who are going to run for president. And, you know, there's no part of me that believes that the debate stage for the for the Republican primary is going to start off at like three or four candidates. It's going to start off at, you know, 12 to 16 candidates as it as it did for the Democrats last time around and as it did for the Republicans the time before that when Trump won. So, you know, it's there's going to be a crowded field. I think each one of these candidates is trying to figure out where to position themselves for future greatness. And if I'm Larry Hogan, and I'm looking at this, I say, all right, A, there's no way I can win the presidency in 24, period. There's just no, there's no path whatsoever to even getting to the Republican nomination, much less than winning theoretically a general uh, election uh, there thereafter. So that's number one. Number two is, do I want to go up on the debate stage and get the crap kicked out of me by Donald Trump? Do I want to put myself through that if I don't have a path? And so I think you're going to start seeing some moderates peel off. I think you're going to see other moderates who believe they are the savior of the Republican Party, who are very willing to get on that debate stage and try to stick it to Donald Trump. And so this is going to turn into we're going to have a group of candidates that are maybe electable. I I say we put DeSantis in there. You know, Tim Scott is is, you know, the where I want to be theoretically. But you're going to have a group of candidates that are moderates that are just yelling at Donald Trump I, and they're going to yell back over. Tanner, I don't even think moderate is the right yeah. term anymore. I oh, think it's like a Larry Hogan. It is. I, I think it's conservative principled conservatives versus populists. Donald Trump is a populist and all he does is fan the flames of people that he doesn't give a hoot about. And, and that's, you know, it's performative politics, as as Hogan says in his in his essay. And I think we have to start. I think if Rodney, if I were trying to move the Republican Party in a productive direction, I would kind of get away from the cult of personality and get back to principle, which is exactly what Larry Hogan is saying. I think things like the you know Ron DeSantis's war on what what do you whatever you call it wokeism you know woke capitalism air quotes or ESG or whatever it is 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 ultimately a winning political issue. I think that people don't want government in their business generally. That's a winning political position, and and if the Republicans want to win they've got to get back to those like core principles that it's kind of reaganism i is what i think of well tim scott seems to be the candidate trying to to take that lane as an unannounced candidate tim you know i served very briefly with him before he was appointed to the senate towner knows him tim's a great great senator a great person but in today's party i mean you look at where the Democratic primary was four years ago. Uh, there were candidates that many Republicans were very worried about, Kamala Harris being one. 
and she didn't even make it to Iowa. Tulsi Gabbard eviscerated her on the first debate stage and she dropped out. So we're going to see that. But one thing to think about, even after the Democrats coalesced behind Joe Biden before South Carolina, they gave us Pete Buttigieg being part of the cabinet. Joe Biden realized in order to succeed the rest of the primary caucus season, he had to move his message left. He had to appease those Bernie Sanders supporters that were the populace. And, and we've talked on this podcast before. The parties, as we knew them 10 years ago, are not the same. And especially on the Republican side, we Republicans now have that populist side where they actually believe in big government handling problems too, just like Bernie Sanders and his base has believed for decades. Mm. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. I think you're right, but it's just, it's just different. And Mark, on, on well, your side it, it, of the aisle. Frankly, uh, back to 2016, uh, I remember being in New Hampshire and knocking on doors. We knew Hillary was the nominee, but uh, it was fun to, to turn out up there. And household after household said, nah, not, not interested in Hillary, trying to decide between Bernie and Trump. And that's Rodney's point. You get far enough around the bend and you got the same yeah. people talking to each other about two very different men. So meanwhile, uh, I was struck by there was an Axios piece this week about fissures in the Democratic Party, specifically around immigration and the crime bill in, in D.C. And it seems, Mark, like what Biden is doing is actually moving to the right in some respects. I mean, he's running a general election campaign because he doesn't have to run right. a primary. And he's toughening up on the border. Senator Menendez is quoted by Axios as saying, the lack of communication on immigration-related policy decisions is an insult, talking about the Biden administration. So he's moving right. He's running the general. It's very, it's very smart. It's deja vu all over again. It's as Rodney was just saying in the primary in 2016, uh, 2020 rather, to consolidate the Democratic side after he became the presumptive nominee. He had to move his message a little left. Once the nomination was secured, he started moving back to the right. This podcast, you could go back to the early days of the Biden administration. We spent a lot of time talking about exactly this. Can Biden get the progressives under control? And that's the noise that we're hearing now. I don't mean to demean it by saying noise. I think there's a sincere sincere split, a division on, on crime and on immigration. But he will succeed again in consolidating the party, is my prediction. Well, there's a big problem on crime and immigration that has to be dealt with. I mean, right. we've been on the phone this week. I've been on the phone with clients that... You and I both, Mark, have been on the phone with clients. I learned a, a new term yesterday in our core, the organized retail crime. 
Yeah. You know, well, it's it's not that new, but Mark, have you been living under a rock? <laughs> no, I've been a uh, I've you, been on grandparent duty. You completely just set yourself up. By the way, Mark, I should have oh. started with this. It's not Mazel Mark's fault. It's called shopping in Philadelphia. <laughs> right. Mark, right. I, I should have started here and I apologize. It's called shopping yeah. in Philadelphia. <laughs> Mark Mazeltov on the birth of your sixth grandchild, yeah. your fifth granddaughter. You have a starting five girls basketball team. Jamie yeah. Alderman does not stand a snowball's chance in hell of getting a word in edgewise. We get his, a little playing time as the sixth man, but yeah. no one's listening. To he's him. completely screwed. But yeah. congratulations from from Thanks. all of us. But yes, Mark, you as Caitlin rightly points out, you you clearly have been living under a rock. This is not a new term. Or in Philadelphia, same same thing. Yeah. Um, Nantucket. <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry, I had to clear my throat. Uh, yeah. What'd you think of that house, Howard? Are you guys? Uh, Excellent. The, uh, but the other interesting thing about the dispute between the Democrats on the, on the Democratic side of the aisle, Towner, is, I mean, people, this is what it makes me think of as a former executive branch guy. Like, people think that a Republican in Congress and a Republican in the White House or a Democrat in Congress and a Democrat in the White House are like, always getting along. And it's so not the case. No. The White House doesn't, They do they care about congressional Democrats? Yeah. When they need to get legislation passed. Yeah. And obviously they care about the dialogue, but Joe Biden doesn't sit there and say, well, what's Bob Menendez going to say about what I'm doing? He's executing his office. Absolutely. They're elected to individual positions uh, for the, you know, the the joke is always uh, doesn't matter which political party you are uh, in the House. The other political party uh, isn't the enemy. The Senate's the enemy uh, at the end of the day. And and they're all trying to figure out what to do with the White House. And so, you know, it's we are in an era of divided government. I don't think we're you know, there isn't a time coming up. I don't think that we're going to see 60 votes in the Senate to to overcome a filibuster. And folks have learned how to get along a little bit. You know, the as I've said on the podcast a few times now, the big issues, highly contentious. If you're seeing it in, in the nightly news, it is highly contentious. If you are not seeing it in the nightly news, Congress has somehow managed to pass all of the authorizations yeah. it needs to it's passed all of the the you know up and coming legislation that uh, that we've been working on for clients. It's it things are still happening behind the scenes because people are still talking. They're just publicly not talking to each other. Yes. Well, and to tell us, I think we're kind of burying in the lead here. It was a really big deal that something that as we scoffed at how House Republicans weren't going to be able to get anything done this Congress and there was nothing bipartisan that could get done. It was a really big deal that this vote count in the house got the, the vote to overturn the dc law got i think was it upwards of 20 um democratic votes in the house and then in the senate the final vote was 80 to 14 i mean talk about not when's the last time we saw that many senators come together on an issue and we we haven't really talked about the sort of the frustration that house democrats have have with this White House right now, given they thought that Biden was planning to veto this piece of legislation. 
I, I just think it's really interesting how this Congress is actually starting to get a couple of things done. We're holding some compelling hearings on the origins of COVID. We're getting to the, we're holding China accountable in many ways. And we just have this overwhelmingly bipartisan bill to combat crime in our nation's capital. I think that's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive start to a new Congress. Rodney, Rodney what's your perspective? I couldn't agree with Caitlin Moore. Um, this was impressive. I think what was also surprising to Democrats is that the Biden administration is starting to care about optics. They're starting to care about moving back to the middle for his reelection. And there's one issue that really separates Republicans and Democrats right now, and that is crime. You look at Chicago in my home state, a mayor who was elected four years ago with over 70% of the vote against a stalwart Democratic known politician in a general election, couldn't get out of a primary. She couldn't get over 20% of the vote in a primary that is not partisan, but everybody knows who the Democrats are. Um, this is this is a major, major issue. And the Biden administration was smart to do this. But what is happening on the ground in D.C. and elsewhere is is really real. I mean, I, I there there was a there's a CVS about a mile from the Capitol, and when I was in Congress, I probably shopped there four times in my career, and two of those times I watched shoplifters clear off a shelf into a trash bag and run out, and nobody batted an eye. People see that, and people don't care about our Republicans. They don't care about D Democrats. They care about their own safety, and they care about their neighborhoods. It's uh, I lived a block from that CVS for 18 years, by the way. <laughs> it, it is a very real problem, but all politics being local, it plays out very differently in, in different places. And maybe I'm just playing to Towner's Philadelphia joke here. But in the mayoral primary coming up in Philadelphia, unless something happens to change the dynamic, we are going to see a very progressive, a, a self-declared socialist candidate with her base of 25 to 30 percent win in an eight, nine person field. And crime is a central issue here. It, it's real and, and it is on the agenda, but no one is consolidating around the anti-crime yeah. candidate. So it, it cuts every which way. Howard, I just wanted to go back to Biden for one second. I think he is putting out a much more nuanced <clears throat> and sophisticated message than previously. He, he has not been strong on messaging in the first couple of years of his first yeah. term. But his budget, for example, is is not a moderate document. And he has a lot in there that isn't, of course, going to become law. It's a free role at uh, taking a position on something he's never going to have to put a pen to. But his billionaire's tax and some of the other proposals in that budget are trying to bring everybody in. He's something for everybody remains the Biden the Biden approach. Well, my point is that he, he cares about his election. Absolutely. Everybody cares about their own election. 
yes, there are Democrats and Republicans, and yes, there are people who have some loyalty to their party, Rodney. But when you were running, you you cared about your election, not Trump's yeah. election or well, Mitt Romney's the election. We, we can say right? with great, great confidence, we can say that after a lifetime of standing for public office, this is Joe Biden's last election. So he is if, very focused on this coming out right. By the way, it's not impossible that he ends up not being the candidate for the Democrats, but he's clearly running. That doesn't mean at the end of the day. I mean, who knows what happens? Well, nature, God forbid, could intervene. But other than nature intervening, he's our nominee. Right, 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 right. I agree. Yeah. When you start hear, hearing Hillary's name being floated again, be very concerned, President Biden. Be very concerned. In the end, you know, Howard, you asked me if when I was in Congress, if we cared about our own election versus what was happening in the country. Now, I'd like to say I was different. I'd like to say that, you know, we we put good policies first, but you're elected by your constituents in your district. So that's your first priority. And, and their priority might have been a, uh, you know, might have been a presidential candidate that was different than the ones that that I I have preferred. And then when you go back, you, you listen to your constituents and, you, and you, you work with whomever the president is. And I came to Congress in 2012 when Barack Obama got reelected. And I was criticized because I said, I'm going to work with Barack Obama because he got elected just like I did. That's our job now. It's not just about politics. And the same Democrats who were, who were just telling me that I had to work with Obama. I had to, to go with him on every policy. And I had to support his budgetary line items like raising taxes on Americans. And I would remind them, I, I got elected with a much different platform. But those same Democrats criticized me when I said, I'm going to work with President Trump when he got elected in 2016. But that, to me, is the job of a member of Congress. However, Congress is populated now by a lot of people who have no intention of governing, no matter who's there. It's all about social media clicks. It's all about likes on Instagram. It's all about building their brand. And then they're able to go out and, and raise money online to keep them in Congress. So they care less about policies. They care less about budgets like the one Biden introduced. And they care more about keeping the rage machine alive. And Mark, I do want to say, I mean, I'm glad you threw Joe Biden's budget out there. I always love when Democrats propose taxes on on millionaires and billionaires who are who are paying right now 42 point, I think, six percent of all taxes that the federal government collects. I want to let Democrats know they have the ability and Howard knows this because he worked at Treasury. You can write a check to pay whatever share of the federal tax burden you think you owe. You can feel good about yourself. You can pat yourself on the back. I will personally take that check to the Department of Treasury on your behalf, Mark. Much, much appreciated. I'm going to check with my accountant and, and get back to you on that, Rodney. Mark's a, a great Democrat until April 15th. One day a year, I'm a Republican. So speaking of candidates, there is an intense battle for the Senate, Mark, on the horizon in in 2024 alongside the Right. We'll see what happens at the presidential level, but very vulnerable. The Democratic majority is very, probably more vulnerable than it's been in the last 
10, 12 years. I mean, very, right. very, very vulnerable. Many Democratic candidates in up in or Democratic senators up in red states, uh, very red states like West Virginia and Montana and Ohio. So how are you looking at the at the Senate map a couple of years out? Ugly map for Democrats. Pick up opportunities uh, across the country, as you just cited uh, a few, but very early, very early, much too soon to declare leader McConnell is is back in the majority. And the the game is on. We are I spoke with Senator Tester uh, last week. We're going to be hosting him uh, in early April. We are hosting Senator Brown, with whom uh, I, I also spoke. Even candidates you would think would be optimistic are are running scared. Uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, for example, I, I had the opportunity to talk with. We're going to be hosting him as well. He is concerned about dark money coming into Rhode Island and upsetting his uh his employment plans. So yeah, it's a very edgy Democratic Senate uh, caucus uh, at this point. And and Schumer has some decisions to make. He has uh, he has a mess on his hands in Arizona. You've had some recent personal experience, Howard, with that mess. And and we we will see. But right there, West Virginia, Montana, uh, Arizona, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Well, yeah, Pennsylvania, I'm feeling better about. I think Bob is, thank God, Bob is healthy. And and that is that is uh, the most important thing. I I think we'll be okay here. Although, wow, we may we may have a, a junior senator, a new junior senator in Pennsylvania. That's a whole different uh, rabbit hole. But yeah, you you could easily see this thing swinging easily. Counter, you and I spent a little time this week with Senator Cinema and a and a client. Yeah, she's got a she's got a tough race. The good news though, Towner, is that Kari Lake says she can't be a presidential candidate or even on the ticket for vice president because you can't be governor of Arizona and a candidate for that office at the same time. So yeah, shadow know. governor. Yes. She apparently, though, she is thinking about running for Senate, which is would be a gift to the that'd be a gift to the Democrats. Well, the best right, thing that can happen. Right now, she has the same legal standing as governor of Arizona as she does as president of the United States. So she can just pick her office. No, but go ahead, Towner. I was just going to say the best thing that could happen for Republicans, quite frankly, is that Donald Trump selects Carrie Lake as his vice presidential candidate, and then they go down in flames, and we get a, a sensible Senate candidate uh, running. There you go. They are the Republican versions of Stacey Abrams, Governor Abrams, in Georgia, and it's sad to see that you know people on both sides of the political spectrum don't accept election results. I was just at the uh, NRSC yesterday, and let me tell you, Harry Lake will not be the nominee in Arizona if they have anything to say about it. What's different about this cycle and the Republican National Senatorial Committee under Chairman Daines is that they are 
incredibly focused on ensuring that we are propping up and supporting early candidates that can win a general election. So that's the difference between this cycle and last cycle. And I do not think she will be uh, the nominee there. Carl Rove had a column in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, and he said, while primaries can be healthy, GOP leadership must also help avoid highly divisive contests that leave the party split, exhausted, broke, and with a freakish nominee. Agree agree with Carl, the architect, 100% per usual. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. We're in for quite a... Quite a couple of years here. Um, we'll be watching it. Mark, Rodney, Towner, Caitlin, interesting as always. Uh, and we will be back next week. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.